his law. O'Toole's commentary is that Murphy was an optimist. <laughs> but for us as Christians, there's a much more serious issue than, than merely learning that adversity is inevitable. And we even have to go beyond the point of enduring adversity or becoming resigned to it. We need to learn how to utilize it. We have to learn how to suffer successfully. And I can't think of a book that uh, teaches us better how to face adversity than the book of James, the little epistle of, of James. Would you turn with me to his book? It comes right after Hebrews. Uh, this letter, I think, has suffered a great deal at the hands of some uh, interpreters. Some believe that the book uh, contains in it uh, a very unusual form of, of Christianity, a very unorthodox presentation of the Christian faith, and is, in fact, uh, in competition with much of Paul's writings. Even Martin Luther believed that this was, as he called it, an epistle of straw when compared with the writings of, of John and, uh, and Paul. He believed that James was in conflict with Paul in his teaching on justification. He felt that uh, the, the apostle Paul taught that our acceptance before God is on the basis of, of faith, whereas James presents the, the idea that we're justified by works. But you have to understand Luther's times. He was in conflict with the Roman Catholic Church, and they were using the book of James like a bludgeon against the Reformation. And uh, so Luther discounted this book. As a matter of fact, in his, in his uh, translation of the Bible, he put it at the very end and called it an epistle of straw. It has, as he put it, no gospel content in it. But with all due respect to uh, Dr. Luther, who's birthday we celebrate this month, I think. He's 500 years old this month. He, uh, he simply, because of the conflict that he was embroiled in, misunderstood the book. James wrote, I believe, after Paul. Paul completed the book of Romans about A.D. 57. James wrote around 60 A.D. And he's assuming all the facts of Paul's epistles. The facts of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and all the work that, uh, that our Lord did for us on the cross. He's assuming the fact of justification by faith. I think what James uh, is concerned with is the perversion of Paul's teaching. Now, I won't say any, anything more about that until we come to chapter 2, except to say that James is not in conflict with the Apostle Paul. He is rather complimentary. You can't read the book of James in isolation from, from the other por portions of the New Testament. It's like the book of Proverbs. If you read Proverbs only in the Old Testament, you'd be a legalist. If you read James only in the New Testament, you'd be a legalist. But James assumes all the facts of the gospel and the availability of, of God's grace to us. That's in the backdrop, as we'll see as we make our way through the book. The other problem I think that people have with the book of James is, is that they feel it lacks unity. It doesn't hang together. It doesn't have any cohesiveness. It's like the book of Proverbs, a series of isolated thoughts, none of which have any uh, connection with, with what precede or, or what follows. Little sermons, snapshots without any connection. But I don't think so. I think there is one underlying theme throughout the book, and it's stated in, in, in James' terminology as the law of liberty. 
James realizes that uh, it's obedience that sets us free to be real men and, and, and real women. Liberty is not doing what we want to do. Liberty is doing what we ought to do. Doing what we want to do is the worst kind of slavery. James' point throughout is that if you really want to be free, you want to get yourself free, the thing to do is to obey God. To to be willing to will one thing, as Kierkegaard put it. To choose God's will in in the face of adversity. That's what sets you free. It was interesting to me this, uh, this, last, uh, this last week I was doing some background reading to the book of James and I discovered that this idea of, of obedience to law setting, setting, uh, setting us free goes all the way back into Greek thought and beyond. Plato was perhaps the first to express this idea, at least in written form. He believed that there were certain laws in the universe which, if obeyed, would set you free and if you disobeyed them, you'd be enslaved by those, those very laws. He reasoned from natural law the laws of gravity and the other physical laws, and, and realize that we don't actually break those laws. When we do, we, we suffer the consequences. And he said the same is true of moral law. So even secular pagan philosophers realize that when you violate law, you, you suffer the consequences. And that's what James is saying. True freedom is, is doing what we ought to do. That's what sets us free. And that's a very novel concept uh, today where everybody is trying to get themselves free and express themselves and get more space, and, and they, 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 they want liberty. But as James points out, liberty is, is doing God's will. Uh, we, we used to have a little book, one of these little golden books that we read to our children, about a little train that was annoyed because it had to run on the track. Some of you may have seen that, that story. And uh, the little train longed to get off the track so it could express itself, and uh, sooner or later it was able to do that. And you know what happened? It got bogged down in the mud. And it realized that, that it was only free when it was on the track. Now, that's what James teaches us. It's the law, Christ's law, as it's enunciated in the New Testament, that sets us free. Now, uh, the little book is said to be authored by James. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 1, which is the uh, introduction to the book. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. James is the author. Now, the question is, what's James? There are a number of men who bore that name in the New Testament. There were two apostles, one who was called James the Lesser or James the Little One, probably so-called because he was short of stature. And then there was James, the brother of, uh, of John, who was the son of Zebedee. But uh, it, it probably is not either of those James. I don't think anyone any longer believes that either of those James authored the book. James the Apostle, the son of John, was martyred about A.D. 44. He was killed by Herod. And uh, that's too early for James to have, uh, to have authored this book. Most people believe now that the book is written by the James who was the brother of Jesus. Or more properly, his half-brother. Because uh, Joseph was the father of James, but not the father of, of Jesus. Can you imagine what it would be like to be in a family where your older brother was perfect? He never sinned. Wouldn't that be annoying? 
He always did what he was told. He never argued with his uh, parents. He uh, always picked up his toys. He always washed the ring out of the bathtub when he was through. <laughs> he did everything by the book. Isn't any wonder that they grew up resenting Jesus? All of his brothers and sister did. sisters did. He was an embarrassment to them. Mark tells us at one point that the people were saying that Jesus had gone crazy. And uh, they tried to kidnap him to get him out of the public eye so that he would no longer be a source of embarrassment to the family. The gospel writers go even further. They say that they disliked him. They didn't believe in him. He was a nuisance to have around the house. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that that our Lord, after the resurrection, appeared first to the twelve and then to James and then to the other apostles. And it was at that point that James realized that, that the, the little boy who grew up around his house was God incarnate. That's why he describes himself in this book as James, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. This would be a grand opportunity to do a little bit of name dropping, to say James, the brother of Jesus. But he doesn't do that. He describes himself as James, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. He realized that uh, his brother was God himself who had, who had come to earth. Now, uh, James went on to become a leader in the, in the early church. He was head of the church in Jerusalem, which was the central church, the mother church from which all other churches sprang. And from his position as an apostle, he wasn't one of the twelve, but he is designated in the New Testament as an apostle. He had apostolic authority. He had seen the risen Lord and been commissioned by the Lord. He, uh, as an apostle, he had apostolic authority, and therefore he wrote scripture from that position. And as head of the church in Jerusalem, he's one of the so-called pillars of the early church one on whom the church rested. He carried on his shoulders the responsibility for the church in, in Jerusalem. It's out of that uh, position that, that he, writes, uh, he writes his book. He writes, according to his introduction, to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. There are some who think, therefore, that this book is an exclusively Jewish book. It was written early in the history of the church and only to Jewish Christians. But for myself, I don't think so. I, I think James is using the term 12 tribes for the church. We are, as Paul puts it in Galatians 6, the Israel of God. We are the historical continuation of the nation of Israel. We are the people of God today. We are the 12 tribes, as was the church in the, in the first century, though it was not exclusively Jewish. It was composed of, of Jews and Gentiles. And uh, furthermore, he describes them as dispersed abroad. Israel, the nation of Israel, had, had their dispersion. In the 6th century B.C., they were scattered by the Babylonians and by the, earlier by the Assyrians all over the, Roman, all over the world, the ancient world. They, they referred to themselves as members of the diaspora. They were scattered exiles. And James refers to the church as scattered because uh, after the stoning of Stephen, the church was scattered all over the world. Uh, Peter, whose epistle is obviously written to both Jews and Gentiles, begins his epistle by saying, that he's writing to the exiles scattered abroad. He's talking about the new Israel, the church that he describes here as, as the 12 tribes. So this book is a little different than, all of the, than some of the other books in the New Testament and certainly all of Paul's writings. Paul wrote to, 
to specific churches or to localities, the region of Galatia or the book written to Ephesus seems to have been an encyclical letter to all the churches on the western end of Asia Minor. Or he wrote to individuals, Timothy and Titus. But James writes to the church at large. That's why this book is called, along with the books of Peter and John and Jude, who, who incidentally was his brother, uh, these books are called general epistles or Catholic epistles in the sense of their being universal. They're written to Christians everywhere. And uh, to us who live 1,920-some-odd years later. To these 12 tribes, James issues a, a greeting. The word simply means health. The, the counterpart is our expression, I, I hope you're doing well. Just a simple salutation. James, a bondservant of, of God, not the brother of Jesus, but God's servant, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes, that is the new Israel, the Israel of God, which like Israel of old is scattered, sown, abroad, dispersed, a word of greeting. And he plunges into the body of the letter in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The word various here is the word from which we get our word polka dotted. It means variegated. An assortment of trials that come at us from all directions. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, so let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We need first to define some terms. The word that's translated trials here uh, has a two-pronged meaning. It refers not only to inward temptation, but through outward circumstances, assaults from without and from within. And therefore, throughout the letter, I'm, I'm going to, uh, to use the expression assaults of evil in place of trial. Because James seems to use it in that dual sense. Attacks from within. Attacks from without. James says, uh, count it all joy. Now, we need to define the term joy because when we think of joy, we think of pleasure or happiness, but that's not, that's not the meaning of the Greek term. It means to be satisfied, to, to be at rest. It's related to the word that's translated greeting earlier. It means to be in health, to have a sense of well-being, to know that it, it's okay, it's all right. We don't need to panic. You don't need to do something desperate. You don't have to take to your bed or take to, to your bottle or, or uh, do something crazy. Strip your clothes off and set your hair on fire and run through the house screaming so they'll commit you. And you won't have to worry anymore about the pressures that you face in your house. You don't need to leave your husband or your wife. It's okay. It's all right. You see, he's not saying that we have to be Pollyannas. We have to fake it and smile and say, Hallelujah, I have terminal cancer. Or, yippee, my husband left me with four children and a $50,000 debt. That, that's not what he's saying. He's saying when times get tough, when you face adversity, be at peace. Be calm. You're okay. Everything's all right. Count it all joy. Consider it all joy. By the way, the all does not modify tribulation or trial. 
It modifies the noun trial. Count it pure joy, he's saying. You don't, you don't have to consider the trial itself joy. But you can look at the circumstance and know that everything is, is okay. It's all right. Now, there are two things in, in, in this passage that are, are said about trials. The first is that assaults of evil upon us are inevitable. He does not say, count it all joy if you encounter various trials. He says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. There, there's a very good reason why we will encounter adversity in this world. We live in a fallen world. We live in the midst of fallen people. We ourselves are fallen. And furthermore, we have an enemy who is out to get you and to get me. Jesus uh, refers to him, and the other writers of Scripture refer to him as Satan. That's, that's an anglicized, uh, an English form of the Hebrew word Satan. It just means an adversary, an enemy. You have an opponent who's out to destroy everything worthwhile in your life. God wants to free us from guilt and take away our doubt and despair. And he wants to heal our marriages. And he, he wants to make us productive and fruitful. And he, he wants us to grow in, in character and in our, in our ability to, to, to influence others toward, toward Christ. And Satan wants to undermine all of that. He's out to destroy us. He's behind all the adversity, the inward temptation, the outward assaults upon us, the adverse circumstances that we experience. It, it, it's that one that Jesus designated as a liar and a murderer who's out to destroy, to maim and to blight and to ruin the quality of, of life. And, and that's why life is so hard. All you have to do is read the book of Job to come to that conclusion. Satan is behind everything that happens to to Job, the natural disaster, the collapse of his house that destroys his children, his physical affliction, the nagging of his wife. Satan is behind it all. Though God himself accepts ultimate responsibility for it. I, I've been interested in, uh, over the past four years in following the career of John Elway, who was formerly Stanford's quarterback. And uh, some of you may have seen uh, his disastrous performance last week in the game between Denver and and the Baltimore Colts, the Baltimore Colts were out to get him for ob obvious reasons. As you know, he originally was slated to go there and, and uh, refused to go, and so he was traded to Denver. And it was obvious that uh, Baltimore Colts wanted to uh, maim him. And uh, he spent most of the game flat on his back with some 250-pound lineman sitting on his chest. He was sacked about six or seven times. It was just, oh, it was just terrible. He, he limped off the field in the third quarter and, and never did get back into, into the game. But, you know, if you were to talk to John Elway today, he would probably be very philosophical about the beating that he took because he knew that's the name of the game. Those defensive linemen were out to get him. That's their job. And when they knocked him down, he, he couldn't jump up and say, why, why me? Why are you going after me? I'm just trying to play football. You're trying to inhibit and impede my progress. Why are you trying to knock me? Down? Why don't you go hit him? Now, he knows better than that. He knows that's the way you play the game. The object of the game is to, is to get the quarterback. And, and that's what's in Satan's mind. You see, it's after you. He's after me. And, and we can't look at our circumstances and say, why me? Why, why did this happen? 
happened to me? My question is, why not me? Ray Stebbin used to tell a story about a man who uh, was crowded onto a subway uh, car. And he was the last person to get in and saw he was packed into this thing. There's no more room in the car. And he had to face out. And the door was shut right in front of his face. And the stifling atmosphere in the car and the motion of the car made him very, very ill. He just kept getting sicker and sicker. And finally the car pulled into the station. The doors flipped open. And he just became desperately ill all over some poor guy that was standing in line waiting to get on the train. And the door slams shut and the train scoots on out the tunnel. And the guy is standing there and he looks at the man behind and he says, Why me? Well, that's the way we feel. Peter says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try you as so as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice in as much as you are partakers of, of, of Christ's suffering. He went that route. Why should we have it any better? See? Well, we shouldn't be surprised. We have an enemy out there, an unseen enemy who's out to get us, and God will at times permit him to break through whatever defenses God has erected in order to assault us, and we shouldn't be surprised. You certainly see that from the book of Job. Satan asked permission to afflict Job, and God gave him permission. And in the end, God accepts all responsibility for it. And in the final end of the book, though Job saw nothing of the, of the drama that was being played out in the spiritual realm, he saw none of the glory that God received. At, at the final, at the end, Job gets the message and he says, I used to see with my eyes, but now I see, I really see. God has the right to do whatever he feels is, is appropriate and right in my life. And he rested in that. Doesn't God have that right? One of the most disturbing parables that Jesus told, disturbing not because it's, it's difficult to understand. The content of the story is very easy to understand. It's the implications of the parable that are so disturbing. Jesus tells a story about a number of people who go out into the field to work, labor in a vineyard. Some go early in the morning, 6 o'clock. Others go in the middle of the morning. Others at noon. Some in the middle of the afternoon. Some at 5 o'clock. The whistle blows at 6. They all go to collect their pay because in those days they paid at the end of every workday. Paymaster starts uh, making payment, and, he, and everyone gets the same. And those that had worked for 12 hours said, Now, wait a minute, that isn't right. We've borne the heat of the day. We've taken the heat. Paymaster says, Doesn't the owner of the vineyard have the right to do what he pleases with what is his? Doesn't he have that right? So there's just no other way to look at life. Adversity is certain. We can expect it. We have an enemy, and we have a sovereign Lord who at times will let that enemy penetrate whatever supernatural spiritual defenses God has erected about us, and we will experience times of, of pain and hurt and suffering. That's It's inevitable. There's a second thing that James tells us in this passage, and it is that suffering is purposeful. Let me read it again. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, various assaults of evil upon you, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. We have to know something 
before we can suffer successfully, what we need to know is that there is something purposeful going on. We are not merely being battered senselessly. It's all meaningful. It's purposeful. James describes it as a, as a test of faith. It's a testing of your faith that produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, perfect in, in all parts, lacking in nothing. Without tests, our, our, our lives would never blossom into character, which is the, the hallmark of our, of our faith. Our character can only bloom when, when we suffer. We, we learn to put into practice what we say we believe through suffering. Suffering is, is not an elective. It's a required course for us because that's the only way that we can, can learn the lessons of faith that, that we have to learn. Suffering is the examination that, that lets us know whether or not we've learned the content of, of the course. We've reactivated the Men's uh, Fellowship Bible Study, and I've been teaching through some of the miracles of Jesus. And in preparing for a class a, a couple of weeks hence, I uh, uh, was reminded again of Jesus' statement to the disciples. Let's uh, get in the boat and uh, let's go to the other side, he says. So we're, we're going to get in the boat and we're going to go over to the region of the garrison. So they get in the boat and uh, they start across the, the, the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is, is exhausted, so he goes into the bow of the, of, of the little boat, and he goes to sleep. And a storm strikes, and the boat is about to sink, and the disciples panic, and they, they awaken Jesus, and they said, Don't you even care that we perish? And Jesus gets up, and he says, Don't you have any faith? Hush, he says to the, to the winds. And, and the Sea of Galilee becomes like, like a sea of glass. And he goes back to the bow of the boat, and he goes to sleep, and the disciples say, Wow! Did you see that? You see, Jesus said, Let's get into the boat, and let's go to the other side. He did not say, Let's get into the boat, and go into the middle, and sink. They didn't trust him. They didn't really believe him. That's why he said, Don't, don't you have any faith? Don't you trust me? Aren't you able to rely upon me? You see, and that's what these storms of life teach us. That's the examination that, that confirms whether or not we have learned the lessons that, that are embodied in, in the gospel. Now, we need to understand that in, endurance is not resignation. It's not merely being stoic. It's not setting your jaw and gritting your teeth and deciding that you're going to see it through no matter what. Endurance means obedience in the face of, of counter-influences. It means doing what God has called you to do no matter what it costs you. To endure means to tell the truth even though t telling the truth is going to get you into a great deal of trouble financially or, or socially. Endurance means staying with your marriage and working at it and loving your mate e even though... It's going to hurt to do so. It's going to cost a great deal. That's what it means to endure. Endurance means being pure in mind and body when you're the only person in your office who is. That's what James means by endurance. And as we endure, as we obey, 
as we learn obedience by the things which we suffer, as Hebrews puts it. That, you know, that's what happened to our Lord. Even he had to learn obedience, though he was, he was obedient from the beginning. He had to learn what it meant to obey by what he suffered. That's what adversity does for us. It teaches us to obey. It toughens us. It makes us mature. James says that if we let endurance have its perfect work, the result will be maturity in all of our parts, lacking in nothing. No element of character untouched. We'll be able to face the hard times of life with poise and with calm and with peace and with a restful, trustful spirit. Doesn't happen overnight. It's not like flipping a switch. God doesn't pour a bucket of patience on our head when we ask for it. It's a process that entails failure. But even failure is part of the process. And as we continue to do what God has called us to do in the face of some adverse circumstance, we grow when we stop being resentful because people overlook us or are unjust to us or mistreat us. And we choose to love that person and we're enduring. When we choose to be forgiving, though someone has wronged us 490 times, then we're enduring. That's what James means. Not merely being stoic, gritting your teeth, and determining you're going to make it through, and just being tough. He's talking about obedience. And if we obey in the hard times, he will give us grace to keep on obeying as things get harder, and we will be mature and complete. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read uh, those words and I think those thoughts, I'm confronted immediately with my own feelings of inadequacy and how in the world am I going to forgive that person? After all, look what he did to me. And uh, how can I stay with my marriage when it's in total disarray? James tells us in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom. Now you'll notice the, the last clause of verse uh, 4 is that the process works until we become mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But who of us can say that we're, we're mature? And complete in all of our parts, we still lack a great deal. And we know it, but James says, when you lack wisdom, ask of God, who gives to all men generously, not an elite group of men and women, but all. And he gives generously. That's a fine old English word that conveys not only the generosity of the giver, but the, but the generosity of the gift. He gives and he gives and he gives. Later on, James will tell us, that he's the, the father who delights in giving and there's no shadow of turning with him. He gives only good things. He never turns his back on us. He gives generously without reproach. No strings attached. He doesn't get upset when we come back again and again. He doesn't say, what? Are you back again? Forty-nine times this week you've come asking for patience to deal with your children. Don't you know I have other things to do? Why are you bothering me? No, no, he, he's not that way. He gives without reproaching. If you lack wisdom, he says, ask and it will be given. Now, we, we need to understand what James means by wisdom. He's not talking about information. He's not talking about uh, uh, intellect. He's talking about character. We could exchange for the word wisdom, character. 
Because James is thinking of wisdom in the Old Testament sense. As you know, in the Old Testament, there are, there are a number of books that fall under the category of wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, some portions of the Psalms are wisdom books. And if you read those books, you know that they deal with character. It's how to be the right kind of person in the world. And, and that's the use, I think, that James makes of, of this term. If, if you lack character, look, for example, in chapter 3 of the book of James. Verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his behavior his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be arrogant and, and uh, so lie against the truth. The wisdom, that wisdom is not... Uh, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable. The word means tractable, te- uh, teachable, non-defensive, uh, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. You need purity? You need purity of thought and, and body when you're assaulted on every side by inducements to be impure. James says, ask for it. That's what he delights to give. Do you need to be peaceable? Do you need to learn how to make peace instead of create disturbances wherever you go? And ask for it. Do you you need to learn how to be gentle when people are harsh and cutting around you? Ask for it. Do you need to learn to be non-defensive? Do you tend to be a threatened individual who reacts when people try try to speak to you? That's an element of wisdom for which we can ask. He'll fill us with mercy, he says, and good fruits. He'll make us unwavering. Do you tend to be unstable and easily shaken and emotional about about your circumstances and easily knocked off balance. James says that's it's wisdom to be unwavering. He'll give that to you. And you'll be without hypocrisy. Do you need reality? Do you feel like you have to fake it most of the time? You, you have to look good in certain situations. And when you know inside you don't feel good and you, you aren't really good. See, those are all elements of wisdom that we can ask for and he'll give. The verb is present tense. Keep on asking. It's not implying that the first time we ask, it's there for good. It's something we have to keep on working at. It's a process that won't culminate until the Lord comes back. It's not, as I say, like flipping a switch. It's not an immediate thing, but it's certain. Do you need courage to tell the truth this afternoon? He'll give it to you. Do you need to be forgiving as someone who's wronged you this past week? He'll give you forgiveness. Do you need to go make peace? He'll he'll give you the capacity to do that. All you have to do is ask. Just keep asking. It all depends upon him. It doesn't depend on us. Those who say that the book of James has no, no gracious content to it simply don't understand. This is grace personified. This is James saying, whatever you need, ask. What demand is, is upon you today for character? Ask. doesn't promise to give you wealth. 
doesn't promise to make your life easy. doesn't promise to give you everything your heart desires in terms of, of material things. But what he does promise is to give you the character that you need to be mature and stable and untouched by your circumstances. But there is one proviso. He says in verse 6, we have to ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, double-souled man. He's like, like John Bunyan's Mr. Facing Both Ways. He's like Augustine, who prayed, Lord, make me pure, but, but not yet. See, when, when, when James says we need to ask in faith without doubting, he's not saying again that we have to clench our jaw and, and believe, somehow believe, that God's going to give it to us. I've never been able to do that, frankly. It, it doesn't work. It's like Alice trying to pretend that she's going to grow taller by thinking about it. It doesn't work. What James is saying is that we need to ask without hesitancy. And if, and if you look in the New American Standard in the margin, you'll see that that's the alternate translation. The word doesn't mean doubt in the sense of unbelief. It just means being uncertain whether we want to do what God has called us to do. It does no good to ask God for the courage to tell the truth if we're really not sure we want to tell the truth, if at the same time we're concocting the lie in our, in our mind. It doesn't do any good to pray, Lord, make me pure, but not now, later. It doesn't do any good to pray, Lord, give me the grace to make my marriage go, but right now I just cannot love that man or that woman, and I don't intend to try. She's going to get the silent treatment for the next week. It doesn't work. can't ask like that. God doesn't give good things to people who, who don't appreciate them. To any of us, he doesn't give. He only gives to those who will ask in faith without duplicity, without facing in two directions at the same time. As Jesus put it, if the eye is single, the whole body will be full of light, but if the eye is evil, the word he uses means dual, if it, we're looking two things at the same time, how great is that darkness? That's just another way of saying what James says, that that kind of duplicity is what makes us unstable. That's why we're moody, that's why we're up and down. That's why we can do what's right one minute and we can't do it the next. James says we're like a wave of the sea tossed back and forth. We're double-minded people, unstable in, in all of our ways. What James is saying is, is this. Whatever you have to face this week in terms of overcoming a habit or, or enticement or inducement to some sort of sin or... Any sort of, of adverse circumstance that you have to face this week, God will give you the grace to face that, and not only to endure it, but to be obedient and to do whatever God has called you to do in that circumstance. doesn't matter what it is. Maybe you're struggling with some habit that has dominated your, your thinking and, and, and your body for years. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt. It's going to be painful to give it up. But you say, I want wisdom. I want the character to do it. And I'm willing to go through whatever I have to go through in order to experience the liberty that, that God gives. Then he'll give you the grace. Or if you're willing to work at your marriage or keep yourself pure or whatever the demands are upon you, 
There, there is adequate grace to meet your, your needs. For every pressure on you today, there is a corresponding counteracting resource from an indwelling Christ. Annie Flint Johnson put it this way. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He giveth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied grace. She's picking up something that the Apostle Peter says, uh, probably thinking back to uh, James' word for various trials or multiplied trials. It's the Greek word poikilos. And Peter uses the same word when he says, to those of us who believe there is given multiplied grace. So for multiplied trials. You know, when when someone backs the truck up to us and unloads and, and... And trials fall on us like bricks one at a time out of that truck. And we say, why me? We can say, well, I know why me. I have an enemy out there. And for some reason, God is permitting that enemy to have access to me at this time. But I have whatever I need in Christ to face this circumstance and to be calm and to be peaceful and to be loving and to be sensitive to other people's needs instead of thinking that everyone has to be concerned about about me. For multiplied trials, there's multiplied grace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half gone, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love knows no limit. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. So don't uh, give out. Don't give up. Don't give in. Keep enduring. Keep obeying. Do what God has called you to do in the face of, of the adverse circumstance or the temptation with which you're struggling right now. And know that he'll give you grace to endure. Let's pray. What unusual counsel, Lord, this is. When we compare it with with the sort of information we receive from the world, the, the, the kinds of helpful advice that people give us that we know are so counterproductive, which actually work to our own detriment over over time. We know that. We've learned that. And we thank you for for giving us the truth in a straightforward way, telling us about the source of of our trouble and what we can do to endure in the face of of our distress. And while we do not particularly welcome the pain and the suffering, we welcome this revelation that it's all purposeful. It's to a good end, designed to perfect us and mature us. Beautify our character and make us more winsome and give us greater impact upon those around us. We thank you for revealing this truth to us. Now give us the grace to believe it and the strength to practice it in the face of our circumstances today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.